Earlier we read all of Obadiah, and the reason we did that, and the reason we're going to do that for the next couple of weeks, is so that everyone would know this book really well. See, there are many people who don't know that this book exists, let alone what's in it. And so we really want to um, make sure, I, it's really on my heart that you know this book well uh, by the end of this four weeks. Recall with me the story of the emperor's new clothes. Two swindlers arrive at the capital city of an empire where the emperor is very vain and prideful. These swindlers promise this emperor that they can make him magnificent clothing. So magnificent, in fact, that it will be invisible to anyone who is stupid or incompetent. The emperor, of course, hires them, and they set up their looms and go to work. Now, there's a procession of officials who come in to look at their progress, and finally, the emperor himself to see how this, these clothes are coming along. Of course, they see nothing, but they don't say a word because they don't want to appear inept or foolish or stupid. And so the day finally arrives when the weavers get done with their clothes and they mime putting it on the emperor. And he goes off into a magnificent uh, processional throughout his kingdom to show off his clothes. Now the townspeople, of course, are pretty uncomfortable with all of this as they rightly should be. But not a single one of them say a word because they too do not want to appear inept or stupid. And it isn't until a child blurts out, where are your clothes, that everyone realizes what has gone on. Now in the version I'm familiar with, the emperor, embarrassed, runs back to his palace and orders the execution of these two swindlers who are nowhere to be found. This has been depicted this week by Jacob and Sarah. Jacob, on this side, I really like his, because he says, What? I don't have any clothes? Now, this is what I would expect if I found out that I had no clothes on. What? But he goes, What? And then the other picture, Sarah's picture, I really like, because it has great inflection in it, okay? You have two questions being asked. One says, like the colors. On the other side of the loom, you have, like the pattern. And the person says, yes, exclamation point, question mark. Like, yeah, I'll say yes, but what's going on here? We're going to be using this illustration throughout the sermon this week, so I asked the children to uh, depict it for us. What was the downfall of the emperor in this story? It was pride. Pride blinded the emperor to the truth. Pride prodded the officials to fall in line with the emperor. Pride silenced the townsfolk watching the spectacle in front of them. Pride, a five-letter word that wreaks havoc in our lives, our relationships, and our faith. But what is pride? This word is so common in our vocabulary and in the culture that we need to understand what it is and what it is not. In the Bible, pride is describing the sense of superiority we get about ourselves or about those close to us. In the Bible, pride is never talked about in a good light. Never. Not once. Now, it's interesting, then, that this word is actually attached to the LGBTQ plus movement. When we are talking about pride, I am not talking about supporting or identifying with this movement at all. 
we often don't view the sin of pride as on the same level of other sins. What's wrong with being prideful? Well, to answer that question, let's turn to Obadiah, verses 1 and 2. Obadiah 1 and 2, it's found on page 772 of your ESV chair Bible. This is what Obadiah 1 and 2 says. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent out among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The book of Obadiah opens up with a harsh condemnation of Edom, communicated through a vision to the prophet Obadiah and originating from the Lord. In this week's From Pulpit and Paper, I, I detail how this is a personal decree from God. I would invite you to, to check that out. God is personally present here. We will see judgment in this book, but we need to understand that this book begins and ends with a loving father protecting his children. But the next phrase is a little difficult to understand. It says this, We have heard a report from the Lord. Now the word we is referring back to the Lord Yahweh. And the report in the Hebrew is coming from Yahweh. God is issuing a decree based on something he has heard from himself. Again, God is personally present in this situation, and he is showing that this information cannot be contested. He himself has gathered it. Its origin and its interpretation are infallible. Based on this information, God is issuing a call to all nations to rise against Edom for battle. Now, throughout history, God has often worked through other nations to pronounce judgment. It's a scary thing to be on the receiving end of God's declaration of war. Why is it scary? Let's look at verse 2. It says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. So God is going to completely humble this nation. The word utterly in the, comes from the Hebrew word meaning strongly and with force. You shall be despised strongly and with force. There will be no turning back for Edom after this judgment is executed. Edom will be utterly despised. So what's wrong with being prideful? Well, it's obvious from these first two verses that God opposes the prideful. And that's our first verse for today. What's wrong with being prideful? God opposes the prideful. We fail to understand the true nature of pride. We are willing to say, he is a good man, but proud. Or, he is proud, but accomplishes good things, and not blink an eye. We have no problem admitting that goodness and pride can be companions, that they can coexist. However, if I said, she is a good woman, but a thief, well, we're immediately outraged. These two uh, sins cannot coexist together. A person cannot be good and a thief at the same time, or, or he's a good man and an adulterer. We're not willing to let uh, two other sins to cloud our judgment of understanding of someone's character. But pride? We give pride a pass. God opposes the prideful. 
In the sight of God, pride is fully as bad as stealing and adultery, if not worse, because pride is self-reliance instead of God-reliance. God hates self-reliance. It's the sin of sins. It's the sin of Satan exalting himself above God. It's the sin of Adam and Eve deciding that they did not need God. Nothing lies at the heart of humanity's problems like the prideful desire to take over God's place or to think that we don't need him, which is essentially the same thing. On a personal level, we think we can do without God in our family life or our business or in our health or in a dozen other areas. On a national level, pride often expresses itself in the characteristic boasts of Edom. But I find myself thinking, and I suppose you are too, that we're not Edom. In fact, America supports Israel. What's wrong with being a proud American, or a proud employee, or a proud farmer, or a proud fill-in-the-blank? Let's look at Obadiah verses 3 and 4. It says this, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride is Deceiving. Pride comes from being deceived. The meaning of the word deceived from this verse in the original Hebrew is very interesting. The original word means to lend on interest or to be a creditor. So this verb is being used to say that Edom's pride has given them a credit or an interest that has come due and it's been found wanting. Their pride has inflated their heart and that inflation was built on nothing. They think that they're clothed, but they're strutting around with nothing on. Verse 3 shows that Edom was proud of their defenses, dwelling in the clefts of the rock. Now, a little knowledge of where Edom was situated geographically will help us understand this verse. If you can remember, if you've seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, and they're riding on horses through the clefts, and they come to that, that temple that's built into the side of the, the mountain, or if you know where Petra is, you know where Edom is located. Experts say that because of the way this mountainous area is situated, a dozen men could hold off an entire army. Safe in their defenses, the people of Edom were free to wage war and to demand tribute payments to them while being relatively safe and, and free from outside interference. They boast, who will bring me down to the ground? They placed pride in the strength of their dwelling, the rocks that surrounded them, and in the high places where they could see the danger coming. Physically and in their heart, they felt invulnerable. They were proud about their defenses. Unfortunately, we can do the same thing, can't we? Nationally, are we not proud of our defenses, of America's military might, do we not boast in having the best army, the best missiles, or the far superior technology to the rest of the world? Do we not place pride in our security 
as a nation. We need to understand that pride, any pride, deceives us into challenging God. And that's our second point for today. Pride deceives us into challenging God. We become self-reliant and not God-reliant. Verse 4 reminds us that God opposes the prideful. It says, Though you soar aloft like the eagle. In the Hebrew, this better translates to, Though you exalt yourself as an eagle. These people are pridefully holding themselves up. They are setting their nests among the stars. They have inflated themselves. They ask at the end of verse 3, Who will bring me down to the ground? God answers this in verse 4. I will bring you down to the ground. Pride is deceiving. Pride, any pride, deceives us into challenging God. But holding pride in our position or in our actions doesn't make us anything more than what we actually are, and that's frail, sinful human beings. Now, recently I had, I had COVID, and if there is one thing that I was really reminded of when I had that is that I am a frail human being. I was really fatigued, and I had difficulty breathing, and I still have difficulty breathing sometimes. COVID took my wife and myself down hard. Pride deceives us to think that we're not frail. Pride deceives us into thinking that we are self-reliant. It deceives us into puffing ourselves up. It inflates our ego to think that we aren't frail, we aren't sinful. Pride deceives us into challenging God. Individually and nationally, we think, who can bring us down? Look at how great or strong we are, we boast. But our boasting is nothing more than air. Friends, don't be deceived. We are frail. We are sinful. Neither our position or our actions can change that. We cannot change that reality. Now, many of us might agree with our frailty. That might be an easy thing to, to agree with. We may be thinking, I'm, I'm not going to outright challenge God. That would just be ridiculous, right? But it would be safe to ask, are there ways that we are challenging God that we are not aware of? Are there ways that we are deceiving ourselves? Well, let's look at verses 5 through 9 to answer that question. Verse 5 paints a picture of thieves coming to rob the Edomites. It says, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough from themselves, for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not have gleanings? What normally happens when thieves and plunderers steal? There's something that's left behind, right? I mean, even... Even the Grinch who tried to steal Christmas, he's still left behind who hooks and who wires and who homes. Not even he could steal everything. The same with the grape gatherers that are detailed here in the verse. There are gleanings that are left behind from their harvest. We trust in this belief that after hardship, there will be things left behind that we can use to rebuild our lives. We think, as long as we got each other, or as long as I have the, the clothes on my back, or as long as I have my strong work ethic, 
you know, we will be fine. But even that is self-reliance. Even that is trusting in the wrong things. And even that is pride. And verse 5 is referencing back to verse 2. Verse 2 says that Edom is going to be utterly destroyed, that they are going to be destroyed with force or with strength. Look at the middle of verse 5. God reiterates how you have been destroyed. So this trust in the ability to rebuild after hardship is misplaced. When God brings down the prideful, there will be nothing left for us to rebuild. Okay, no matter how vigilant or systematic thieves and plunderers are, there will be something left over. Not so with God's judgment. God would lay total waste to Edom. Like the emperor, Edom is trusting in a piece of clothing that isn't there. The things that we trust in are the things that we put our security in. The things that we put our security in are, uh, are things that become a source of pride for us. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Now remember that because of the geographical location of Edom, his, they were able to make others pay tribute while being relatively safe. So Edom had wealth and was placing trust and security and pride in their money that they had accumulated. How many of us do the same thing? I think this is one of the most natural things for any of us to do, to place trust and security in our wealth. Individually, we believe that we can weather economic hardship if we have enough money to fall back on. Nationally, it is a point of pride that every other currency is compared to the American dollar. We place our trust in our national wealth and seek to assert our economic dominance. But wealth cannot be trusted. It can be entirely taken away. Like the emperor, wealth is just another piece of non-existent clothing in the eyes of God. So far, God has been taking away every security, each object of trust, and each pride away from the Edomites. Every security is doomed for destruction. This continues in verse 7. Because of her location, Edom had a vast network of allies. But God said that the alliances that Edom placed trust in were nothing. Now, there are two phrases that stand out in this verse. I'm going to read the whole thing first. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So two phrases stand out. The first one is found in this fourth line here. It says, those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. This word for set is the exact same word used in verse 4 for setting their nests among the stars. What, what they thought was security... God is contrasting and saying, it's your utter destruction. They have trusted in the wrong things. The nest that they thought they had is actually a trap. The second phrase occurs right after this. It says, you have no understanding. Now this could be better rendered from the Hebrew as no one is aware of it. No one is aware of it. 
Verse 7, all of your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. Those they have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. No one is aware of it. In other words, this destruction that is all around them is completely hidden from them. They have no clue that it's there. God is telling them that their trusted friends cannot be trusted in. As Edom has deceived itself, so too have its allies. Edom placed trust, security, and pride in their allies. Do we not do the same thing in America? We trust in our thriving relationships with other countries. We are in what has been called the age of diplomacy. If weapons do not work, maybe diplomacy will, or vice versa. Now, it's better to have diplomatic relationships than none at all. It's very wise to have that. But Obadiah's point is that we cannot trust in these. Other nations will deceive. The only thing in which a nation is ever truly secure is a humble and obedient relationship with God. The only thing a nation is ever truly secure in is a humble and obedient relationship with God. It is wise to have allies, but not to trust in them. Allies are just another piece of invisible clothing in the eyes of God. God continues to strip Edom of its pride. Verse 8. God promises to destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. Now, from the human perspective, this is not just empty arrogance. Now, we wouldn't normally think that Edom was this abode of human wisdom, but they were. They were noted for their wisdom. Edom is referred to as the men of the East in multiple locations throughout the Old Testament. So in 1 Kings 4, where uh, King Solomon's wisdom is being talked about, his wisdom is actually being compared to Edom. It says his wisdom is greater than the men of the East. And in Jeremiah 49.7, it speaks of Edom as if it's a known place for wisdom. I'd invite you to write that scripture down and go check that one out later. Edom put pride in this. Look how smart we are. But God will destroy the wisdom and understanding of Edom. They cannot trust their own intellect, nor can they trust their own strength. Verse 9, your mighty men shall be dismayed. Every man will be cut off uh, by slaughter. God will destroy the mighty man too. The strong cannot be trusted to save them. To God, their wisdom is foolishness. Their strength is is weakness. The first nine verses of Obadiah show Edom to be an emperor proudly walking around naked. Pride is born out of selfishly trusting the wrong things. That's our third point for today. Pride is born out of selfishly trusting the wrong things. Point number one, God opposes the prideful. Point number two, Pride deceives us into challenging God. And point number three, pride is born out of selfishly trusting the wrong things. The Edomites trusted in their ability to rebuild. They trusted in their wealth. They trusted in their allies. 
in their wisdom and in their strength. We do the exact same thing as Americans and as individuals. We trust in other things to provide our security. We take pride in these things. However, Obadiah is warning us away from this. He's crying out saying, do not follow the path of Edom. So if we don't find our trust in these things, if we don't follow the path of Edom, then where do we find our security? Well, it's in God. But God is not content to come after a plus sign. We can't have security in our things plus God. We can't have security in our actions plus God. We can't have pride in our defenses plus God. Our ability to rebuild plus God. Our allies plus God. Our wisdom plus God. Our strength plus God. It must be God and God alone. But often, we try to get through the day until the moment comes where we've exhausted our strength and we've exhausted our wisdom. And only then do we say, well, I should probably ask God about this. Leads to our big idea for today. For this whole passage, verse 1 through 9 is summed up with this statement, God deflates the prideful. God deflates the prideful. Look at each of these verses we just went through. Every security that Edom had is a security that we have. Everything Edom had pride in is something that we place pride in. Something America places pride in. As Americans, we have become self-reliant. We puff ourselves up. As individuals, we have become self-reliant. We are proud, and we have become proud. But in God's eyes, we are strutting around with nothing on. And Obadiah is the child who is pointing out our pride and vanity. And we have to ask ourselves, will we listen? Or will we try to rationalize it away? Or worse yet, will we try to silence it? Because God destroys every security that is not based in him. He destroys it all and leaves nothing left. Why? Why does God do this? Because in trusting something else, in taking pride in something else, in putting our security in something else, we reject God. We are Adam and Eve back in the garden plucking fruit right and left. And God will not have that. Look at the last phrase of Obadiah, the very last phrase of the very last verse, verse 21. The last phrase. This is what it says. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That is the final word. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. It will not be ours. It will not be made in our image. It will not be made up of our things, of our defenses, of our wisdom, of our strength, of our allies. It will be God's and God's alone. How do we enter this kingdom? Well, we take our cue from the kingdom's leader, Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. 
but humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We must humble ourselves before God. And the humility, true humility before God, can only happen when we surrender our all to him and accept his free gift of grace, his gift of salvation. God is so compassionate and loving that he stands by ready to give us his grace and his salvation to all who uh, ask of it, who all, to all who put their faith in him. He gives it because his son lived a perfect life. He humbled himself and, and took our place. He was the only one who had cause to have uh, trust, security, and pride in himself. And instead, he lays his life down for us. He lays his life down for those of us who are proudly walking around with nothing on. We must humbly accept that Christ did this for us and place our sole trust in his death and in his resurrection. Now, I was going to close today with a few practical steps on how to grow in humility. I'm going to save that for next time. Today, I want to close with a word of reassurance. Our country is going through a pandemic. It has gone through chaotic looting, shouting matches, and a contentious election that promises to continue for a little while. This chaos has affected our school system and our places of work. This church has gone through a long season of transition and change. Many of us are tired and are hurting. We have trusted in our health. We've trusted in the security of family, in law and order in this country, and in consistency in this church. We've been reminded that we need to trust in God, and we try to do that only for another wave to break over the ship and threaten to break it up. And so we find ourselves battling everything, our country, our community, each other in church, everything. Friends, today, now is a time for grace. Now is a time to give grace to each other out of love, to overlook slights, to let go of the past, to draw close to each other in deep Christian fellowship, to encourage one another, and to bear each other's burdens, to be humble with each other. This is a call to come together and help each other trust in God and God alone. We struggle to do this by ourselves. It's because we were never meant to do it by ourselves. One of the reasons God put the church together is so that we can come together and help each other trust in God and God alone. So be encouraged. We are not alone. We can face things together. God is with us, and we're with each other. And at the end of all things, we face an eternity in that reality. Be encouraged today. Help each other to trust in God and God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning.
And Lord, I pray that we let go of any pride that we have in anything, any trust that we have in anything, or security that we have in anything. And Lord, help us to just trust in you and you alone. Help us to turn to you first, to turn to you only. Lord, to turn to you for our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In our weakness, you are strong, Lord. Help us to turn to you for our strength. Help us to turn to you for our wisdom and what we should do. Lord, to turn to you for our security, for our hope. Lord, we confess that we have trusted in other things. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of our pride. And guide us as we go throughout this week, Lord, to be humble before you and to be humble before each other, that we can be transparent and authentic with each other, that we can admit our struggles and lean on others for help. Lord, you have put other believers in our lives to strengthen and encourage us. Help us to trust in you, Lord. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.